Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be beginning my series on A Scanner Darkly. A Scanner Darkly was published in 1977. Um, and it's, in my opinion, this is his last great novel. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of, of what he pursued in the Vallis trilogy, although I think there's some good moments in those books. I, I think none of them really match the, the clarity and the the power of a, of a book like A Scanner Darkly or some of, some of his greatest 1960s stories. So it's with a little bit of sadness that I that I begin this series knowing that it's kind of like ending, uh, really, really come to the end of this, of this, this, this podcast series. It's a very personal novel, and, and I guess that, that is something these have in common with the Valis, the, the Valis trilogy. It, it comes, you know, with during in a period when Dick was experiencing a lot of regret and malaise about about the drug culture that he was associated with throughout much of the 60s and early 70s, the I guess the optimism or the the the, the kind of um, creativity he saw in drug use in in some of his earlier novels uh, that's gone. I mean, there's there's it's drugs are no longer the pathway for reality bending, or if it is, it's in a horrific way. It's Drug use does does bend reality for for the users, but it's all in very toxic and and, and unfortunate ways, and and it, it kind of leads different characters to to various types of insanity and antisocial behavior and um and awkwardness. But this is a novel also, I think, about the failure of the drug war. war. Rereading this after having recently rewatched the entire series of The Wire, I'm, I'm struck at at how much Dick would have agreed with many of the consents, the the conceits that that David Simon makes in in the Wire, such as the 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 the, the hybrid relationship between the drug pushers and the and the police, right? The the just the the incapacity of the state to really regulate something like the drug trade, the failure of of the standard kind of by bust. These are themes that are in the Scanner Darkly. You know, but we see them also in in the wire, uh, to a large extent. Just looking at the the failure of the drug war. So although this is an anti-drug book in many respects, it's and he's pretty open about that. He writes an an, an kind of an author's note at the end of the after the at the end of the book that goes into how just how much he he feels disgust about the wasted lives that that come out of out of the drug culture. But at the same time, he doesn't have much sympathy for the police, which he sees as really just a, a mere reflection of, of the drug pusher. He doesn't have much of, you know, sympathy with the surveillance state that comes out of that and all the other kind of negative consequences of the war on drugs. Now, me growing up in the in the 80s, I was born in the year this novel was written. You know, I thought the war on drugs was really an 80s thing, you know, and that, that was a big part of the culture I grew up with but actually the war on drugs goes way the back go back to goes back to the nixon years it goes um, it was originally declared um by president richard nixon in 1971 um where he called 
drugs public enemy number one, right? And this this really began the the series of events that would be one of the series of institutions and and legal reforms and overseas interventions and things that would that'd be that'd be collectively known as the war on drugs. Um, so Dick's not respond. He's not prophetic here in the failure of the war on drugs. There was enough history in the early seventies for for Dick to to be able to comment on on the kind of the the arrogance of the state and thinking it could regulate something like like drugs. For, for that reason, Dick does not set this novel much in the future. It's set in the in the '90s, in the early '90s, but it's not a very science fiction environment. There's no off-world colonies. There's not much technological difference. In fact, in this sense, it's one of his more prophetic novels, just in the sense that he realizes that that future of of space travel and the over the the interstellar frontier and encounters with aliens wasn't going to come you know come to pass the setting is very banal there's there's essentially one technology i mean there's actually a handful of them but there's one major technology technological innovation which you know is not wild it's it's not it's not the equivalent of, of ftl drives or something like that it's it's just a a device to aid with undercover police operations and there's a few other little technologies here and there but the setting is very much suburban america in the mid 20th century and that's how the whole novel feels uh there's a drug that's invented there's some institutions that are invented but but it feels feels very very much contemporary it's it's barely a science fiction novel it's also a novel about paranoia almost all the characters experience various degrees of paranoia uh, feeling they're being spied on by the police. In fact, in many cases, they are being spied on the police by the police. There's paranoia about characters' own self-identity. Uh, there's really weird paranoia, like people think they're being infested with aphids. Um, so all the characters we run into have some degree of paranoia and anxiety brought on by drug use or or the realities of the, of the war on drugs. So it's um, if you want to if you, you actually could just interpret this all as a novel about paranoia. And, and I think it is. But at the same time, I, I think we can't ignore that this at the root is a novel about the drug war and the, the, the decadence and just the, the kind of the, the shallowness of the drug culture. Right. If Dick and, and I would be willing to get into a conversation about how much Dick may have romanticized the drug culture in his earlier novels. I, I think that to a certain degree, he did see drugs as an opportunity for kind of mind bending and having new experiences, and new realities. And if you read the 60s novels, you see a lot of this in them. And they, sometimes they're they're it's, it's a tainted experience and not fully authentic and, and problematic. But by and large, they're creative experiences. This novel is fully, pretty much pretty bleak about what drugs do to people. And if you read the author's note at the end, which I, which I will get to at some point more, more carefully, but I think I want to do it at the end of the novel. He goes through a list of, of people in his life that he knew that were destroyed by, the, by drug use. And so he's very much not on the side of the druggies, right? But at the same time, the novel is a sympathetic look at people on that side of the tracks right it's it's a novel of kind of a gated community and i think the first two chapters show this very well the first chapter is all set from the perspective of, of drug addicts experiencing life as a drug addict paranoia of various types um, anxieties of various types contrast in the very next chapter with life a window of, of life from the straits 
right? Uh, we don't actually get too many points of view from the straights, but because even our main character, Bob Archer, is only marginally a straight. He's an undercover police officer, but he's very much part of the drug culture, uh, which he has to be to be a member of the of being an undercover police police officer. But through kind of a meeting of the Lions Club, I think it is, we, we get a window into how the straights view the drug war and drug pushers. And it's a very much a divided culture. And I, I think that hasn't changed that much. The fact that we can have a president who gets elected on a, on a policy, essentially, of, of, of accusing whole swaths of the population of being criminals and rapists and, and drug users and drug pushers, you know, that's... You know the lack of empathy for people who whose life experiences led them to drug abuse or crime. You know, based on where they live, based on their own experiences, based on the failure of other institutions to really give them what they need to succeed in life. Um, and and if someone can still get elected basically by being tough on crime. You know, Dick here has a lot of sympathy for the these people because these are people he knows i mean these characters are based on people he knew and loved and 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 cared about and and in many ways it's a it's a dirge for these people so although the novel is very much anti-drugs it's not it's not unsympathetic to the people who are on drugs and for people who aren't straight so overall it's a great novel i think everyone should read it um the 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 theatrical adaptation of this book the movie adaptation is very very good it's got some you know high-end actors in it keanu reeves and and tony stark whatever his name is robert downey jr is in it um woody harrelson plays in it and it's, it's animated but it's that rotoscope style where the actors are animated kind of over uh, over their real performances they all do a really good job in that that film and it's a pretty honest and real adaptation of and it's one thing that you don't see in other dick adaptations is a, is a kind of an honest and straightforward adaptation of, of actually what's on the page so the adaptation is good so if you don't want to read the book at least check out the adaptation i think it's a it's a really great one so um what am i going to do here i'm going to take my time with a scanner darkly i'm going to do it over five five episodes but i'm, I'm guessing these episodes will maybe will be a little bit shorter um, unfortunately, there's a lot I can quote. I guess that's a good thing and, and a bad thing because it's good because there's a lot of great juicy bits I want to share with you from, from the text. But I also don't want to have this podcast filled with, with quotations and, and just me citing, citing the text. Um, but it is a, it's actually one of his longer novels, but it's also one of his more quotable and, and some of his best prose is, is in this, this novel. I, I still think Galactic Potty was a better story. Uh, a better better thematically better philosophically but but this novel is just so rich in so many ways i, I think it's it's one that really has to be up there in the list of, of one of his greatest works anyway so let's start talking about a scanner a, a scanner darkly um the novel opens really with our introduction to the drug culture and uh, the paranoia that that comes from people partaking in that drug culture. So the first character we meet is, is actually a minor character in the novel as a whole. It's a man named Jerry Fabin. Um, but Dick starts out with one of the casualties of, of the drug war. Someone who is totally, at the, when we meet him, he's he's already reduced to total paranoia. His particular paranoia is about being infested with aphids. He thinks aphids have, have reached him via another character, Donna, who we'll meet later on. 
but have infested him, infested his dog, crawled into his hair, crawled into his lungs, leading him to take these very long showers, trying to wash off these these aphids. Um, in addition to setting up this broken character who is just destroyed by his addiction to substance D, which is the invented drug that that Dick uses, it's it's a bit. It seems to have some characteristics similar to methamphetamine or crystal meth. In fact, crystal meth is a drug in this world too, but in the fact that it's manufactured, the fact that it's it's not from a plant, it, it has to be chemically processed. That's a very useful device for fulfilled Dick here in that he he wants a drug that, that seems to have one source, and that's something that, the, that gives the police kind of their MacGuffin to go after, is who is manufacturing the the substance D. Um, so, but it, it seems to have some characteristics similar to, to uh, crystal meth, but it's not smoked. It, it's, it's ingested as a pill form. Um, so we're Jerry Fabin, our, our, the first character we meet is, is addicted to it. And one result of that is his complete mental breakdown in terms of, of, of becoming a paranoiac. We also learned that our setting is in suburban California. Quote, it was midday in June of 1994 in California in a track area of cheap but durable plastic houses long ago vacated by the Straits. Jerry had an earlier day sprayed metal paint all over his windows, though, to keep out the light. The illumination for the room came from a pole lamp into which he screwed nothing but spot lamps, which shone day and night so as to abolish time for him and his friends. He liked it. He tr- liked to rid of time. He liked to be rid of time. But doing that, he could concentrate on, on important things without interruption. Like this. Two men kneeling down in a shag rug, finding bug after bug and putting them into jar after jar. And who's this friend? Well, the friend is Charles Freck, who's another one of, another drug addict, another person addicted to substance D, who's not paranoid about aphids, but he does come and he helps his friend, Jerry Fabin, try to find these aphids, put them in jars, so... He can show it off. To, you know, he's taking showers constantly. He's just basically trying to help his friend through his mental breakdown. So he's enlisted to solve the problem of, of the aphids. That's the opening scene, and it's quite powerful, it seems to me. Um, now, the next scene is is sometime later after Jerry Fabin has already been institutionalized. He's been sent to a, a clinic for his for drug, drug abuse and drug addiction. And Freck is on his way to go visit him, but he's also paranoid about his own problems. And his biggest problem was his lack of, of substance D. He's got an obsession with supply that runs throughout this chapter. And it's, it's, it feels quite true to life to me. I'm not a drug addict, so I don't, I don't know, but it, I have my own issues with alcohol. So there's something true to life here about this anxiety about, about supply that, that seems true to true to life to me. Um, he even has all these weird paranoias that like the straight businesses have substance D, but they're not sharing it or not selling it, you know, but there's huge supplies of substance D somewhere out there. He just has to know how to get it. He has to have the right connect. Right. Um, but he has this also fear that like the supply will run out. Quote, this was the all time winning horror fantasy that he ran in his head that every doper ran the whole Western part of the United States simultaneously running out. And everybody crashing on the same day, probably around 6 a.m. Sunday morning, while the streets were getting dressed up to go to fucking pray. End quote. That's his first paranoia. The second paranoia he has about cops. So he's just driving around, minding his own business, um, maybe a bit strung out, but he's just driving to see his friend, and the cop is behind him. And he immediately thinks the cop's after him. And he goes into this whole fantasy where a cop pulls him over, and he's not able to say his name because he forgot his name. And then he's eventually shot by 
the police officers. So this anxiety about power becomes um, a deep part of the drug culture as well, um, leading Charles Freck to say that, quote, to survive this fascist police state, he thought you got to always be able to come up with your name, your name, unquote. The point being here that that they see it as a fascist police state. Now, to be honest, we don't get that much of a window into the state itself. Is it fascist? I, I don't see evidence of that. We This is a really intimate look at drug addicts and police in one department. If it's a fascist police state, there's actually not that much evidence of it. We're, we'd be taking a drug addict who would be almost by definition anti-state, uh, anti-police is word for it that it is a police state. It is a fascist state. Um, in fact, we don't actually see evidence of that besides that maybe the police are a little bit stronger. But if you live in early 21st century America, you know very well that there's nothing really here that is that off the wall from what normal practices of police, undercover detectives, surveillance devices, you know, uh, by bus, all this stuff. If you watch The Wire, you know very well that this is all part of the everyday of police departments in all of our cities. You know, and if you want to say that's fascist, I guess you can, but it's 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 part of the paranoia, I think, is what what Stick's trying to say here. The fear of cops, the just the anxiety over power overall. Eventually, this leads Freck though to pull over. You know, if someone trying to avoid the cops will will pull over or pull into a side street, get off the highway. And he does, and the cop goes on his way. Now, by pulling over, though, he he goes to like a mall area, and he walk he drives by this mall, and we get this sense of just how America's become just one extended shopping mall, mall after mall, malls for for the straights, malls for the people who aren't straight, malls for people with credit, malls for people who don't have credit, just row after row of malls. And Freck is kind of girl watching while while driving by these malls. It's kind of a fascinating little couple pages where we see him kind of drooling over these different girls and what they're wearing. And he finally finds uh, Donna. He sees Donna. Donna is identified initially as Bob Arctor's girl. And we're going to meet who Bob Arctor is. He's our main character in the story. But Charles Freck knows that Bob Arctor is holding or has in the past been holding and, and maybe can sell him some some death to crystal uh, or substance D is, is the short. The street name for that is death. Um. Really, though, the, the idea of the world being divided between straights and non-straights is, is clear here. Now, we're getting this from the drug addict's point of view, and we're not, it's not even clear how much of the population is addicted to substance D. But since we spend so much time in the point of view of the drug addicts, it's like that's the whole world they live in is police, drug addicts, undercover cops. That's, that's their world. You know, the straight world is kind of distance. It's, it's almost like in how in Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep, you have the frontier people, right? And they're there, but we don't actually see much of them. They're just kind of talked about. And then most of them, the whole novel set on Earth. This whole novel set within either police departments or in communities of drug users. And so the straights, they might be most of the people actually, but we don't actually see them to any significant degree. So what we get from that is like an idea of a really divided world, a kind of a gated community slum uh, society. Now, yeah, we, there's never like a clear, like in a lot of Dick's novels, we get a clear description of kind of the world we're living in. That's, we don't really get here because everything comes kind of muddled through the eyes of these these characters. 
In fact, at the end of the day, it seems we're just living in normal late capitalist America. And, and that's why this is a powerful novel for, for understanding that so many of Dick's novels really are about late capitalist America. They, they, they're shrouded in science fiction, usually. This novel is so marginally science fiction. It's almost like it, it's it's just set in his world. I mean, I don't really... I have a hard time even calling this a science fiction novel except for a few... The fact that it's set in the future and that there's a few technologies that didn't exist in, in 1977. But anyways, um, he tries to get Donna's attention. Freck is driving around. He tries to get Donna's attention. She's armed for self-defense and she has a little knife. And But eventually he's able to convince her, you know, you know me, we met before. And she gets in the car and they have a conversation. And, and she basically admi- eventually admits that she has a supply of death coming in. And we learned about the pricing. Now, Freck has 300 caps left, which for him is about a week's supply. So we can notice how much people use it. So, so you know, 50 caps a day, 40 caps a day is not an unreasonable amount of consumption uh, of this drug. So um, we see later on characters having, quote unquote, several caps at one moment, actually. Um, so... 300 is a week's supplies for this particular character. And 100 caps cost about $60. So, so what say what, a $30 a day habit? You know, it's, I guess that'd be expensive. It would add up, but it's not, you know, very, it's not an ex, the most expensive habit. Right? I don't know how that compares with other drug habits from the 70s, what they would have cost. But um, $60 for 100 caps is what, she, and she, it's actually suggested that's a high price. Freck thinks that's a high price at the time. Now, he doesn't, he kind of orders, makes an order with Donna, but he doesn't put his money up front. So he, he's thinking, well, if I find something cheaper, that's great. I won't have to fulfill this. But he, he's, he's, he's comforted that he has a supply of, of death coming in. So we really are presented here with a very close-knit circle of addicts and small-time dealers. Donna uses a bit, but she's also small. She's basically a small-time dealer. She works at the mall, makes most of her money from dealing with dealing death on the side. But they all seem to know each other. It's, it's fairly intimate. So it's not clear how big this community of drug users really is. I mean, it's fairly inbred community. And when we get from the police's point of view, it does seem at the same time to be fairly inbred. And I wonder at times reading this, how much of this novel is actually... Both sides are kind of overly paranoid, right? The straights are, and the police are paranoid about a very small, maybe marginal culture of drug users, and the drug users are paranoid about the police. And it's maybe at the end of the day, we're not really talking about that many people. You know, it might just be a handful of, of drug users. It's not half the population that's on drugs. I don't get that sense from reading this novel. Um, and, and it might be an interesting way of reading it to say the paranoia actually extends to the state as well. So anyways, um, after making this deal with Donna, Charles Freck goes on to the rehab clinic to see his friend Jerry, who it's, it's established has, has pretty much lost his mind. So that's chapter one. Um, chapter two takes us then, uh, we, cross the str- we cross the tracks to the, the straight community, and we're at the Anaheim Lions Club, and Bob Arctor, this undercover police officer who is going to be our main character in the story, is giving a speech in front of the squares. Um, and so we get a window into how the squares see the drug war, and the story they get through Bob Arctor, who gives kind of a prepared speech, is 
the drug addicts are behind or the drug dealers are behind every corner. They're trying to push death on your little kids. And if we don't kill them and stop them or arrest them all, they're going to, you know, they're going to, it's going to flood and uh, our communities. Right. And I, I think there's paranoia here too. I, I think the paranoia is not just, it's so easy to see the paranoia from the point of view of the, of the users here, like the, the Jerry and Charles Freck. But these people are just as paranoid that, you know, that what, like it's somewhere in this chapter, there's a story given that they'll they'll like mash up death or they'll they'll drug you and they'll inject you with death to get you addicted. So you'll come back. Right. It's the same kind of paranoia you see every Halloween on Facebook where, you know, there's these warnings that there's going to be drug pushers who are going to try to, you know, give your kid some candy. That's really drugs. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this really happens. I have a hard time believing too many drug dealers would give away free drugs to little kids, hoping that some of them would become future customers. But that paranoia is out there, right? And I remember hearing this stuff when I was young in grade school, you know, and the, you know, and the school would give their presentations about, you know, we got to watch out for this or that. And, you know, the, the, the idea is that everyone, you know, is a drug dealer, the same way everyone, we were kind of told to, you know, we had this paranoia about AIDS, HIV AIDS at the time too. It's like, um, yeah, the squares are plenty of paranoia among the squares is my point. And that's really comes true in this chapter in, in my mind. Now, F Bob Arctor is, is presenting himself as Fred, uh, which is his kind of police undercover officer name. Um, and he's wearing a scramble suit. And then this is really the one technology that's in this, this novel. There's something else called a cephalochronoscope, which as far as I know is made up. I've, I, I guess I didn't look it up, but it sounds made up. But it's not a really important technology for the story. The Scrabble suit is the one key technology in this novel. And basically what it does is it, if someone's wearing it, they're, they are presented as a composite of millions of different images. Right? They're constantly switching. So they might have an eye of one guy and a leg of another guy. And it's, it's all constantly broken up. So it's constantly shifting. The point is you can never really identify who they are. Right. I suppose a mask would do just as well, but it seems a scramble suit also scrambles your voice patterns. And uh, the funny thing about this is there seems to be so many low tech ways to do this. But uh, Dick just had this idea of I think it comes from modern art. In fact, when the backstory, the invention of the scramble suit is given, it's connected to modern art. And like whoever invented it was like sort of obsessed with Kentinsky and Klee and Picasso and you thought well let's make a suit that basically replicates modern art makes people look like a, a work of modern art but there are plenty of, of non-technological ways to do this in fact this this novel could have been written with just regular undercover detectives who, who use a some other device to keep their identity um, safe the point is like the undercover detectives out in the field have an identity uh, among the addicts that the police can't know about you know, to keep his, because the police department is so corrupt. That's really the reason for this. The police department is so corrupt that if any, if anyone in the police department knows that Bob Arctor is Fred, then Bob Arctor will be identified and, and known to the communities. And more evidence, it seems to me, that this is actually a really close-knit incestual relationship that's maybe not involving that many people. It's it's just a, an obsession on both sides. The, the police are obsessed with the small subculture and the sub, small subculture is obsessed with the police. And it leads to all kinds of weird incestual relationships 
which of course requires the need of the, the scramble suit. So in the scramble suit, Fred is giving this, this speech to the Anaheim Lions Club. And it, it's, it starts out a pretty standard law enforcement speech. You know, death is bad. Substance is horrible. Drugs are bad. And the drug dealers are out to get your children. And you got to support the police because we're the front lines of defense saving your family. But as he gives this, this speech, he breaks out of it with his own vision, which is really based on empathy for the drug dealers, saying, don't hurt, don't, don't hurt the people who are addicted to it, that it's not really their fault, that these are just people. And while he's doing this, he gets messages from his bosses who are off screen saying, you know, get back on script. Um, it seems at this point that Bob Arctor is already losing his identity and unable to separate his Bob Arctor identity with his Fred, Fred identity. Um, so the conclusion of the novel is eventually that, that Bob Arctor loses the capacity to differentiate who he is anymore. He kind of becomes two separate people. Uh, that's already coming to pass in the earlier, early pages of the novel. We already see that he's losing his identity. In fact, he asked the question right after his speech, what am I actually, he asked himself. He wished momentarily for a scramble suit. Then he thought I could go on being a vague blur and passerbyers, street people in general would applaud. Let's hear it for the vague blur, he thought doing a short return. What a way to get recognition. How, for instance, could they be sure it wasn't some other vague blur and not the right one? It could be somebody other than Fred Insider or another Fred that they'd never know. Not even when Fred opened his mouth and talked, they wouldn't really know it's him. They would never know. It could be an AI pretending to be, or it could be Al pretending to be Fred, for instance. It could be anyone in there. It could even be an, an empty. Down in Orange County GHQ, they could be piping a voice into the scramble suit, emanating it from the sheriff's office. Fred could, in that case, be anyone who happened to be at the desk one day and happened to pick up the script and the mic or a composite of all sorts of guys at their desks. End quote. And, which is just, uh, you know, he's already losing control of, of who he is and that's only 30 pages into the story and pretty much 10 pages into our introduction to the character of Bob Arctor. Um, we're also reminded that we're in the suburban setting we get these wonderful descriptions of suburban California the, this setting that Dick just he never left really but he had such disgust for. I, I sometimes wonder why he didn't move to like Montana and raise horses or something. He's Maybe he just protests too much, right? He really likes it here. He's kind of fascinated with suburban California, so he never left. But he, you know, he, he always wrote negatively about it in his, in his works. Quote, he didn't look forward to it so he could continue to loiter and delay, going nowhere, going everywhere. In Southern California, it didn't make any difference anyhow where you went. There was always the same McDonald burger place over and over, like a circular strip that turn past you as you pretended to go somewhere and when finally you got your hungry you got hungry and you went to a mcdonald burger place and bought a mcdonald's hamburger it was the one they sold you last time and this time before that and so far so forth back to before you were born and in addition bad people liars said it was made out of turkey gizzards anywhere end quote so this idea is just this repetition this banality this everything is kind of a copy Quote, life in Anaheim, California was a commercial for itself, endlessly replayed. Nothing changed. It just spread out farther and farther in the form of neon ooze. What there was, was always more of it. What there, sorry. What there was always more of had been congealed into permanence long ago, as if the automatic factory that cranked out these objects had jammed it in the on position. How the land became plastic, he thought. Remember the fairy tale of how the sea became salt. Someday you thought it'll be mandatory that we all sell the McDonald's hamburgers as well as buy it. We'll sell it back and forth to each other forever in our living rooms, end quote. Well, that's the 
that's the same essential relationship between the drug pushers and the drug users, right? The police are buying the drugs because they're the police they are undercover drug users and they're using the drugs, but they're selling it and they're going back to the police station where the police officers who are corrupt are selling it back on the street. It's it's that same relationship which is being described here about McDonald's hamburgers, but uh, with with drugs instead of um, heart you know heart disease causing hamburgers. So it's a really wonderful description here. This is all on page 30, 31 of, 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 of the book. Yeah, this is the vintage version. All in chapter two anyways. So we hear a little bit about the actual plan. It doesn't matter that much, but the plan essentially is to use Donna and other small-time buyers or sellers to, to find the supplier. And from the supplier, hopefully find the person who is producing this because it's manufactured and it's being manufactured so cheaply Despite being such a complicated process, it must be a massive institution. That's the idea, right? It's super cheap. Like it couldn't be something that people, you know, could make in their basement because the process is so difficult. So it must be an economy of skill. And and there's actually several mentions of economy of skill throughout the novel, pointing this out in, in various ways. But that means there has to be kind of one big supplier of substance D. And so the goal of the police is to flip people or you know you be undercover until you find whoever's supplying donna and then find that guy you contact with him and then find whoever's supplying him and eventually get to the the actual producer so substance he only has one source that's the key thing and the police strategy is to find that source so um he he's walking around the street after this talk with um the anaheim lions club and he calls donna and and he basically on the phone talks about buying substance D from her. He, there's a little bit of coded language, but not much. And we just see, we're reminded about the weakness of the surveillance state. We're told through Bob Arctor that every single public phone in California is bugged and observed. The problem is there's so many illicit conversations going on that, you know, the police can't really keep track of them all. Right. So many small drug deals on the phone that a small drug deal won't be take the notice of, of the police. A big one would. So what do the drug dealers do? They just talk. They just multiply everything by 10 in their head. Right. So if you want a thousand pills, you say you want 10 pills. Um, and that so it's so easy to get around. Now, I guess that the, that comment that kind of the police are overwhelmed by drug deals on the phone undermines my, my theory that it's a much more small and incestual relationship between substance users and the police. But, um, yeah, take it, take it for what it is. Um, we get another technology mentioned here, and it, it plays a role in Bob Archer's kind of private life, but it's called a cephalochromoscope. What actually just seems to be a, a, a recreational device that that Bob Arctor likes to wear. They're fairly expensive, but they put it on their head and after work or after they get home and watch stuff. I don't know if it's like a for viewing or games or something, but um, they talk a little bit about his cephalochromoscope. And that, that's all that happens in chapter two. It's really uh, this kind of window into Bob Arctor and, and his place. He's an undercover detective. He's, he's connected. His main con- project now is Donna, the character we met before. But he also, you know, he seems to already be breaking down about who he is because of his extensive use of drugs. 
Um, in chapter three, we're, 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 we're meet up back again with Charles Freck, and he's thinking about checking himself into a special clinic called the New Path, which is the, one of the big clinics for drug addicts active in California. Now, he's eating with, with Jim Barris at a coffee shop. Now, Jim Barris, along with another man named Luckman, are the two like roommates of Bob Arctor in his undercover identity. His street identity, right? Jim Barris is one of these. Now, the character of Jim Barris is very interesting. He's like all the other characters, very paranoid, but he's a bit of a tinkerer and he he thinks he has a scientific mind. He seems to observe the world fairly objectively, but at the same time, he's prone to kind of weird ideas, like when he's trying to make a silencer for himself or he thinks he can use uh, kind of an aerosol spray to make homemade cocaine. So, but he approaches everything kind of scientifically and objectively, even though he's a bit off the wall. And I really think here Dick is kind of playing with the overall weird ideas that, that drug users he's met in his life have, have had. I, I love this conversation in this chapter. They're talking, you know, basically Barris is trying to talk Freck out of going to, to New Path. And he said, so Charles Freck says, the first thing they do when you go into New Path is they cut off your pecker as an object lesson. And then they fan out in directions from there. Your spleen next, Barris said. They what? They cut? What does that do, a spleen? Helps you digest your food. How? By removing the cellulose from it. Then I guess after that, just non-cellulose foods, no leaves or alfalfa. How long can you live that way? Barris said. It depends on your attitude. How many spleens does an average person have? He knew there were two kidneys. Depends on his weight and age. Why? Charles Frick felt keen suspicion. A person grows more spleens over the years by the time he's 80. You're shitting me. Barris laughed. Always he had a strange laughter, Charles Freck thought, an unreal laughter, like something breaking. What's your, why your decision to turn yourself in for residence therapy at a drug rehab center? End quote. So that's, uh, that's a really bizarre conversation because obviously there's, um, you know, we just have one spleen. Uh, it's basic anatomy, but he doesn't seem to know it. So anyways, Freck's thinking about turning, you know, turning himself into the to the clinic. Barris sort of talks him out of it. And part of talking him out of it is this promise that he's going to make some cocaine for him. And he says he can make cocaine from just stuff they can buy at the 7-Eleven. So he talks him into taking to the 7-Eleven. They buy some stuff. And I, I think what they end up buying is like some, yeah, solar cane, like sunburn spray at the 7-Eleven. And they go back to the house and Barris basically sprays it into a, a, a bag and puts it in the freezer and says, like, there's some process that the cocaine will crystallize because because they buy in bulk, because solar cane buys cocaine in bulk, they use it in in here, in in this product. Um, it's never really revealed if he makes it. I You know, obviously, I think the assumption is it's all nonsense. But it's just the weird beliefs of drug addicts. And I think that's Dick having a bit of a of a fascination with the way these, these drug addicts in his life thought and maybe talked about things. And, um, you know, I, I guess a lot of this must have been based on real experiences and real conversations he had with some of his, his friends. Um, but the Barris-Freck uh, relationship is a bit shattered at this point when, when, Bar- uh, when Freck basically figures out that, that Barris is trying to cover up the fact that he broke Bob Arctor's cephalochronoscope, which is such a dear and, and loved possession of, of Bob Arctor's. Um, then we switch scenes. We go back to Bob Arctor after leaving Barris. And Bob Arctor is seeking out a local dealer at, at New Path. So he's 
he's going to New Path to to check on a, a, a connection, like a a lead, I such a police lead. And we learn about one way that dealers kind of avoid police prosecution, and that is when they feel paranoid enough, when they feel the police are onto them, they just check themselves into New Path, get out of the business for a while. Then they'll leave New Path and take on a new identity and go back into business. And so it's very difficult to actually catch these these dealers if they're on to police surveillance. And that's what happened here. Um, He's looking for a guy named Spade Weeks, who Bob Archer was kind of on to, but then they disappeared. And the assumption was he went to to this New Path clinic. Um, Now, this is all going to be parallel later in the story when we learn that New Path essentially is the main producer of of substance D that again, this sexual relationship, not just between the police and the dealers, but between the dealers and the users and the, and the rehab clinic. Uh, but while he's there, you know, Bob Archer looks like a drug addict at this point. He's in his, you know, he's not in the scramble suit and he kind of looks in bad shape. So they immediately think he's checking himself in and they're trying to talk him into checking himself in. And Bob Archer is kind of interested in it. And eventually, you know, he obviously he doesn't, but you know, it's, you know, he has this, seems to have this curiosity in, in, in going there and maybe cleaning himself up. Um, but he fails to find the uh, Spade Weeks, and Spade Weeks has essentially disappeared. And so that really leaves him with no choice but to work on his other connection, his other lead, which is which is Donna. Um, so um, that's all we're going to talk about in this episode. It's That's the first three chapters, first 50 pages of the novel or so. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters four through through six, another three chapters. Uh, and that'll deal mostly with uh, Bob Archer and his friends, Luckman and Barris and their various adventures in, you know, as, as addicts. So I look forward to talking about that with you. So um, I hope you've read The Scanner Darkly, or if you haven't, I really encourage you to do that so you can read along with me um, you know, going to the future chapters. So let me know what you think of this particular novel. Is there any aspects of the novel that I didn't talk about or should say more about? Please let me know. Send me a, an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, or you can just leave your comments below. Um, I'll be back shortly with uh, part two of my thoughts on A Scanner Darkly. Thanks for listening. To feel these